The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 2, Sunday, November 13th, 2022. Rios, do not even think about going there. Hey everybody, this is your host Peter with the 19th Digest of the second volume, covering Monday, November 7th through Friday, November 11th, 2022. Marvel Saga Monday, Part 10, taking a look at issue number 10 of the Marvel Saga, the official history of the Marvel Universe. The Marvel Saga format highlights and uses the many threads and stories from across Marvel's 25 years to tell one large, connected, chronological narrative. And then it's my way to make some discoveries, to question or wonder about some untold tales, and to think about what came after the saga once it ended. You know, how did these histories and threads form, connect across the many decades, not only the first 25 years, but what did it mean for you know, comics after the Marvel saga. So far, we've gone from the creation of the universe, and we have now reached publishing, in publishing years, we've reached 1963, or the origin of the first team-up of the X-Men and the Avengers, just like the front cover says um, in the blurb, featuring the origin of the X-Men and Avengers teams. By the way, I wanted to make note about the corner box because I only realized with this issue that it says, you know, Marvel 25th, Marvel 25th anniversary, which is that corner box has been that way since issue five, which was the first Marvel saga issue to be released in 1986, which was Marvel's 25th anniversary year since Fantastic Four was released in August of 1961. So 25 years of the modern Marvel age as far as, you know, 1986. So Marvel Saga, book 10, To Stand United, sounds like a pretty good title for an issue about the formation of teams. Um, This is by Peter Sanderson, writer and researcher, Keith Pollard and Al Williamson back on cover art. You have the main image on the front cover, Together at Last as a Team, The X-Men. And you have Professor Xavier in the middle, and all of the X-Men are running towards him. This is directly adapted from the splash page of X-Men number one by Kirby and Paul Reinman, and we will see that splash page in this issue. The cool thing about the cover, though, is that they put Xavier in a wheelchair as opposed to just being in a regular chair with a blanket. And Marvel Girl, Jean Grey, is in the cover image, even though she's not in the image from X-Men number one, because it makes sense. You know, as we'll see in this issue again, she arrives at the mansion later after we're already introduced to the other four members. Um, But then I'll talk about it later, you know, in eventual continuity, she has always been a student of Xavier's. And then we have some other blurbs plus the origin of the Beast, plus the origin of Jean Grey Marvel Girl, plus the origin of Doctor Strange, plus the Avengers' first battle. That's the other image on the front cover, where we basically see a recreation of the cover to Avengers number one by Kirby and Dick Ayers, uh, with all the team rushing towards Loki. And, you know, if you look at the covers of X-Men number one and, and Avengers number one, 
they have similar compositions where the heroic team is rushing towards the villain and the villain kind of has their back to us and it must have stood out um, especially on the shelves because both issues were released the same week in July of 1963 and Kirby did both of them so he's developing kind of like a theme going on there right to hear that big truck going by Ugh, suburban sounds I'm not going to take it out okay um, <laughs> let's go to the back cover we see Doctor Strange with the Ancient One and Baron Mordo and then we see Doctor Doom holding the Fantastic Four and Ant-Man in his hand that's a recreation of Fantastic Four 16 also by Kirby and Ayers and then we see Spider-Man battling Sandman while the lizard looks on and that those images are emulating the covers from Amazing Spider-Man number four and number six. Okay, the stories and sequences in this issue are pulled from Amazing Spider-Man three through six, Fantastic Four 16 through 18 and Annual One, Avengers One, of course, Strange Tales 110, 111, 115, and 148 for Doctor Strange, and X-Men number one. Okay, let's dig into this chunky issue. Pages one through three wraps up Spider-Man's first encounter with Dr. Octopus. Probably my biggest takeaway is the saga putting the focus on a scene between Human Torch and Peter Parker, who have, you know, they've already met in their superhero identities. Peter's been gloomy about his defeat, so it takes a speech from Johnny Storm to finally give Parker a kick in the pants. And, you know, that final push for Parker to, you know, become the superhero that we know him as today, uh, because so far I've been making note of how there's this selfish side of Peter Parker and Spider-Man needing to make money, thinking of turning to crime. And I wonder, is this the switch, right? Is this the switch in the narrative where he moves from those thoughts and finally embraces the superhero that he is. I don't know. I haven't read a lot of early Spider-Man. So, um, you know, that's just a question I have. I also wonder if this particular scene plays out within the friendship and the rivalry that Spider-Man and Human Torch have to this day. You know, once Torch learned Parker's identity, did Peter tell him about this chance meetup, right? I kind of remember there was a story between the two of them just sort of hanging out um, and and having a conversation. So I have to imagine it was brought up. And I think that story was written somewhere around one more day, I think. I don't remember. Um, I should also mention that the saga opens with a new splash page art by Keith Pollard and Al Williamson based on one little panel on page 13 of Amazing Spider-Man number 3. We then move to pages 3 through 10, which features Doctor Strange's first appearance, uh, his origin, his early battles with Mordo and Nightmare. We haven't really seen much of Doctor Strange in the saga, except for like maybe the first issue or so. But in terms of actual publishing continuity, it makes sense to bring him here now, because Strange Tales 110 shipped the same month as Amazing Spider-Man number 3 and Fantastic Four 16, which we'll get to in a bit. Um, 
Although as you read both his first appearance and the saga, you see quickly that he's already been active in the Marvel Universe by this point. You know, the saga has dialogue that says, Strange for years, an acknowledged master of the mystic arts. And when he's battling Nightmare within the panels, they already have a history. He calls him his ancient foe. And the saga even states that as of 1986, their first battle hasn't been recorded yet. Um, he's another Marvel character that has a flaw before becoming a hero. His arrogance as a noted surgeon until he has that accident and can no longer use his hands is brought up. And I still want to see a story of Doctor Strange or, or Stephen Strange and Donald Blake meeting pre-heroic identities. I think that would be fun. Uh, this section also started off with a brief tale about the Ancient One and a friend named Kalu, both studying the mystic arts. And, you know, again, Puppet Master had a business partner. The Vulture had a partner, I believe. In the Marvel Universe, don't have business partners and don't have friends. <laughs> because, of course, Kalu betrayed the Ancient One. And uh, that story takes place in the Tibetan village of Kamartaj, which I was like, oh, okay, there you go. I don't remember if the saga mentioned that name again, but there's your connecting connection to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know. Not that I expect that the Cinematic Universe is creating things wholly new and original. You know, of course they're pulling from the comics, but, um, you know, I don't read many Doctor Strange comics. Has that name been in my mind before? Did I read it in the early issues of the saga? I don't remember. Pages 11 through 14 are quick little vignettes. We have major meetings in Peter Parker's life with Betty Brant, Liz Allen, the Sandman, and his origin. We have the Fantastic Four battling Doctor Doom with the help of Ant-Man. And the saga is saying that this is the first time any superhero has traveled to a microverse. Doctor Strange and Baron Mordo have a round two. The Fantastic Four meets the Super Scroll, one of my favorite Marvel villains, and Doctor Doom versus Spidey, along with the Fantastic Four. Then we cut through pages 15 through 18, which is all about Fantastic Four Annual One, where Namor the Submariner has finally found his people. This has been a running theme since we uh, were introduced to the character a couple issues uh, ago. We see Lady Dorma, we see Krang, another attack on New York and how the Fantastic Four has to save the day. Um, and then when Sue is kidnapped, Prince Namor has to basically save her life from drowning. And uh, that puts him at odds with his own people. It's fun seeing the Kirby pages here because you can clearly tell he loves this particular book and he loves this new strange underwater city because the designs are so awesome. I mean, you have to think, he's also doing X-Men, he's also doing Thor, he's also doing Avengers. I'm talking about books that we're looking at in the saga right now. And, you know, the design work on some of those issues, they seem almost secondary compared to Fantastic Four. And it's also interesting to compare, like, Ditko's Spider-Man with Ditko's Doctor Strange work, you know. Um, one, The other thing I wrote about this Namor sequence in light of uh, Black Panther uh, Wakanda Forever um, coming out uh, around this time, 
So in the Marvel Universe, his name means Avenging Son in Atlantean. And when you think about how much he's motivated by his love for Sue, uh, and he has to rescue her, you know, and then at the end of that sequence, the panel says um, that the Atlanteans have left him, and he is he's just there back in the city by himself. The caption reads, Am I to be a king without a kingdom, a man without a home, more than a sea creature, yet less than human? Is there never to be a place for me on the surface or in the sea? Now, I haven't seen the new Black Panther movie, but that's actually an interesting panel when you read about what Namor's son means within the Marvel Cinematic Universe, because it has a different meaning. So that little thematic thing for the character actually makes a lot of sense with the new movie. So I like that. Pages 18 through 20, we have Spider-Man battling the Lizard. There wasn't much that I took away from here other than, oh look, another Marvel bad guy with the colors of green and purple. And, you know, even if they don't have purple, there are a lot of them that just have green or green and yellow, like Loki and later versions of Dr. Octopus, Nightmare's in green, Dr. Doom's in green, Baron Mordo's going to be in green, Namor even has green trunks, Nightmare. I mean, it's all there. It's really interesting. Pages 20 through 23, the origin and the first meeting of the Avengers, all because Loki tried to get Thor and the Hulk to battle I'm a little surprised that the saga didn't give more pages to this um, particular issue. I mean, we've seen all these characters, but, you know, I'm surprised they didn't give a little more for the actual issue. I don't think I've ever read this first appearance, so maybe it's not that good of an issue. <laughs> um, I like seeing Rick Jones and his teen brigade. I want to know more about them. And I knew that Wasp was the one that named the group. What I like is that Hank Pym is the one that comes up with this, the suggestion that they should team up. Because if you think about, like, I don't know, seniority, if you want to say, he's the one that's been around the longest. He's been around almost two years. The Hulk has been around for a year and four months. Thor has been around for like a year. Iron Man has been around for seven months. And the Wasp has only been around for about four months. So Hank Pym, as the senior member, kind of makes sense and in a way um, almost makes him the, you know, the, the, the point man in a way, even though he's, you know, a small guy in the group. Um, and I love Hulk's Mr. T impression. I pity the guy who tries to beat us. Then we go to pages 23 through 26. This is the origin of the beast. We have some new artwork here by Keith Pollard and Bob McLeod based on X-Men 51 through 53, which had original artwork by Werner, Werner Roth and John Tartag. It's almost like they don't want to put Werner Roth artwork in here for some reason. I don't know. Um, this is a tale about the beast's origin where he's captured by the conquistador who wants to use his powers for a scheme involving a solar generator. Uh, the X-Men are looking for mutants, so of course they come across him and they save the day and then he joins the team. It's very, it's you know, very simple. Um, and I, I took note here, that's two of the original five that were more or less in cahoots with villains before they became an X-Man, you know, because Cyclops was also wrapped up with a villain known as the Living Diamond. 
pages 27 through 29, we get the team up of the X-Men and, uh, you know, just like, just like we did with the Avengers. Uh, again, not many pages, but, you know, we've been seeing the X-Men for a long time uh, in this Marvel saga. Uh, that's where we see the opening Kirby page that I talked about in comparison to the cover image. Um, Kitty Pride is right. Xavier is a jerk. <laughs> he says here, class is now in session. Tardiness will be punished. And I'm like, what? What kind of punishment will he actually do? You know, I'm reading all those giant size era X-Men comics for the daily reads segment on Thursdays, right? Whenever I get to it. Um, and I remember there was a point in one of those books where Cyclops was ready to strike uh, uh, not Cyclops, Xavier was ready to s strike Cyclops and there was another one where Cyclops grabbed Jean Grey and was like throttling her. I mean, yeah, they are, uh, they're a very anxious bunch and they're very sort of like physical and, and, you know, reactionary. Um, we get the explanation of what it is to be an X-Men when Xavier talks to Jean Grey, you are a mutant. You possess an extra power, one which ordinary humans do not. That is why I call my students X-Men for extra power. And I love that Xavier, you know, he names Jean Marvel Girl. And, you know, what does that mean in context of being a character within Marvel Comics, you know? We always think of Sue Storm as being like the mother of the Marvel Universe. And in recent years, they've really been trying to get Carol Danvers as Captain Marvel to be like a major A-level player, whether that works or not. But what about Jean Grey? I mean, she was Marvel Girl before Phoenix, right? And although she was Phoenix for a long time, the Marvel Girl name did come back once every now and then. When you think of someone like the Wasp, who eventually becomes the leader of the Avengers and she has a place within the Marvel Universe. Um, Sue Storm, like I mentioned. Where is Jean Grey, right? Like, did the introduction of Storm and Storm's eventual sort of takeover of the X-Men, did that overshadow Jean Grey? You know, I mean, she's a powerful mutant. She's the Phoenix. She's Marvel Girl, right? What does the larger Marvel Universe think about her? It, you know, kind of divorce it from the Phoenix thing. What do they just think about Jean Grey? Um, maybe not so much in a leadership role, but in sort of like a symbolic role. Again, her name is Marvel Girl, right? So I thought that was, when I thought about that, I was like, that could be something that maybe has been explored. I don't know. I would love to think what you think. What do you think of Jean Grey in those terms? You know, where is she in the scale of, all of Marvel's sort of head female characters, right? Like, where does she fit? And then that leads us to pages 29 and 30, which is also new artwork by John Basima and Klaus Janssen. This is the origin of Jean Grey, based on the artwork from Bizarre Adventures 27 by the same creative team. And it's awfully close, so I'm not sure why they needed to recreate it unless files weren't available or maybe because Bizarre Adventures is black and white and they needed artwork for color. I don't know. But the origin is the same. She's playing. Her best friend gets hit by a car. She mentally snaps into her friend's mind as the friend is dying. And then 
becomes distant and isolated, and then she meets Professor X as a, a young girl. That's kind of all the same, which then rounds us out for this issue. Um, this is pages 31 through 32. Back to X-Men number one. Xavier calls himself the first mutant, possibly the first such mutant. And then we get a couple things that the saga admits will change later, uh, such as that Gene and Professor Xavier already know each other. He just didn't want the others to think she was receiving special treatment. And then Xavier says he's in a wheelchair because of a childhood accident, but that also will be retconned to be a battle with Lucifer, which we've already seen that in a previous saga issue when they looked at all of the various bits of the Xavier origin story. Uh, Xavier talks about why the X-Men are together from X-Men number one. It makes me wonder, does it still hold up to today? The human race is not yet ready to accept those with extra powers. So I decided to build a haven, a school for X-Men. We will learn to use our powers for the benefit of mankind, to help those who would distrust us if they knew of our existence. So he's using the name X-Men as a team name, but also as an umbrella term for mutants, right? Obviously, the word mutant is the one that would eventually win out, but he says a school for X-Men, not the X-Men, just X-Men. So, um, you know, I like that. Like, what if they just came across somebody and was like, oh, you're an X-Man, you know, or X-Woman. This is probably why their name will be changed for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And then later, Xavier says that there are more mutants being born each year. Some hate the human race and wish to destroy it. Some feel that mutants should be the real rulers of, rulers of Earth. It is our job to protect mankind from those, from the evil mutants. And again... You could almost read that as a name, right? X-Men versus Evil Mutants. I mean, we get the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants coming up soon. And we have New Mutants in the 80s, which is kind of like a generational name, just like Generation X. So in many ways, you could kind of almost put different names towards different generations. Those are interesting concepts to me. And then the saga close out with the appearance of, closes out with the appearance of Magneto which we've seen in the past as Magnus, and he's now in his Magneto garb, ready to take over the world. Like I said, this was a full, full issue, and we leave Marvel Saga number 10, and we will be, we will be back every other digest, uh, and the next one up will obviously be Marvel Saga issue number 11. Jennifer Walters, Esquire, lawyer, millennial, searching for a way to balance a career and her personal life. Then an accidental dose of gamma-radiated blood alters her body chemistry. And now, when Jennifer Walters grows angry or outraged, a startling metamorphosis occurs. TV Tuesday, here it is. Time for my thoughts on the She-Hulk TV series. You know, the, the controversial TV series um, on Disney+. Plus. Um, I don't have many notes here. Uh, you know, I have basically just like an outline and I'm just going to sort of rattle things off um, because there's been a, enough discussion and discourse about this series. 
And, um, you know, this is just one more person's thoughts on, on a series, you know. Um, first off, it is totally fine. It's a totally fine series. It's not breaking any new ground. Um, the fourth, the whole fourth wall thing, you know, number one is not unique to the character. Number two is not unique to television, right? I mean, there's been mockumentaries. There's, there was Ally McBeal, which was in 1997, uh, Ferris Bueller, um, you know, Top Secret, Austin Powers. I mean, there's been plenty of things that viewers have seen that feel the same, you know, that, that, you know, hit the same beats, deal with, uh, the fourth wall, um, break out of the script of a, of a show or show the inner workings or behind the scene. I mean, this is, this is not all new ground, right? So, um, those people who are trying to bring it down because of that and trying to say that it's not all that original. So that's what makes the show bad. I mean, no, it's, it's, it's doing what the comic books did. It's a mashup of John Byrne and Dan Slott's titles. And, um, uh, it's totally fine, right? It's, you can see the story progression from episode to episode. I thought it actually was a little more, um, linear and made a, a little more sense than some of the, some of the other, um, shows. And I thought it, it allowed, because it played within all that crazy fourth world stuff, it, it had some surprises and there's quirkiness and there's random tangents that make sense. You know, um, I remember Shane over on one of the CGS episodes, you know, said that it's a sitcom and that's exactly what it is, you know. Now, where, where I kind of come into this is I did want it to be more, right? I did want it to go the extra step to be funnier, to have better acting moments and better acting choices. I think there are a few weak deliveries from certain characters or there are scenes that I'm like, okay, was that really the best take you could you could have for that scene? Um, of course I wanted the CGI to be better. Um, and... There are some sequences where it's like, wow, that's a lot of talking, but really nothing is kind of going on, right? Where it's a little more interested in trying to have um, witty dialogue, but not dialogue that necessarily drives the story, you know? And again, if it's a sitcom, that's not always the point. I feel like there's a lot of staging that is unnecessary. Sometimes I found like the camera would just kind of like fixate on something or nothing and nothing would go on for like a few seconds. And I'm like, okay, why wasn't that shaved off? Right? Like in theater, we call it, uh, you could drive a truck through that pause, right? Like if there's a moment where the audience just kind of sits there for a few seconds and, and we remember that we're audience, that's not good. So there was a few TV making things that felt a little raw and amateurish. Um, let's talk about, I, I, this is, this is not a criticism of the show. This is my own thing. But when you got to episode nine, just like I played the intro clip and, um, they did a spoof of the opening to the original Incredible Hulk TV series and we had an actor playing She-Hulk, I don't know. I don't know if there was like maybe a missed opportunity 
in having two actors as as awkward as that might have been but maybe within the narrative of what they were trying to do with the show it probably would have been cool to see jennifer talk to she hulk and and actually be in a scene together um if the cgi is not going to be 500 percent then why not just do somebody in green makeup some tall you know they had a stand-in for She-Hulk in terms of um, using that that actor for you know for the CGI you know to kind of see where it would live in the space and in the setting but why not have a, a someone play it and just kind of have fun with the goofiness of it I don't know that's just me it, it probably wouldn't have worked but I don't know maybe I would have liked it um, Tatiana Maslany, I thought she was really good actually as Jen. She totally works for me. Um, you can tell she's comf- comfortable in a TV series that has to be episodic, you know, because she comes from Orphan Black and she had that experience. So I, I liked her. I really, I really did. Um, I did not like Titania, uh, Titania or Titania. Um, that characterization was I just think that was not good you know if you're gonna do that kind of character why not grab the Titania that was in the grapplers right or why not make it pound cakes or why not make it Letha you know why did you have to make it the character from she from Secret Wars just because she eventually became you know one of She-Hulk's villains but yet you didn't make her any I, I just think they could have used a totally different name and it wouldn't it wouldn't have brought you know some preconceived notions i just i just didn't care for that character and i didn't care for the actress and i i thought that was really bad actually i was all in on the matt murdoch appearance and the daredevil appearance it made some of the legalese of the series a lot of fun and it almost felt like the movie legal eagles i mean i i really enjoyed that um, I think they had a missed opportunity about making a joke about, you know, the Netflix shows if they, I, I, I don't remember that they did. Uh, but yeah, there's, those scenes really worked and, um, this was a show that had a lot of cameos and, and it helped to put She-Hulk into the Marvel Universe, right? Like that's her role within the Marvel Universe. Um, episode eight had a really good ending where she finally went all She-Hulk rage. The stuff with Hulk and She-Hulk, it was okay. It it was fast. I thought it was a little fast. Um, I'm not a fan of, of the way Hulk's characterization is right now. It's just like Thor, you know, they're just, I don't know. I just, uh, I, I think there could be something better. Um, I enjoyed Mark Ruffalo's version of Bruce Banner in the first Avengers movie where he was like, you know, the, the, the skittish, uh, nerdy brain guy, science guy. And, um, I don't know. I just don't like where it wound up. So that made me like those, those scenes were okay. And they helped to define the character and bring the character to the forefront of her own TV series. That was fine. Some of those special effects were, you know, cool or whatever. So I don't know. And then I also felt like the ending, was too rushed and too neutered and I get why they did it and you know she's meeting you know the Kevin because the ending is going in a way that she feels shouldn't go for her series but yet you know it's almost a commentary on how Marvel 
does endings, right? Because a lot of times the criticism is that they don't do endings because it's really just a continuation of whatever it is is that's coming up next, right? So, okay, I'm totally on that. But then what does the show do? It gives us a scene that is connecting us to whatever is going to come out later, right? Like they almost, they did the commentary and yet they did exactly what Marvel movies are, um, or, or TV series sometimes are criticized for. So I was like, well, that's dumb, you know? Um, and the way they did that is, did that is by giving us is scar Hulk's son. Right. And suddenly at the end of the series for she Hulk, that's all anybody can talk about is not the ending of she Hulk, but Oh, did you see Hulk's son? So in many ways, the Kevin yanked the show out from under her just like she didn't want to happen, you know? And I thought that was kind of sad um, because that wasn't the point, you know? If the if the scene with with Jen meeting Kevin is the point of the entire show and the, po- the journey that she gets to to fully accept She-Hulk, it's not cool that they did that ending. And it's not, it's, it wasn't on purpose. You can't, convince me that it was on purpose that they just went back to formula you know they went back to formula because that's what marvel you know tv shows and movies do so anyway nowhere is near as bad as people make it out to be um but also nowhere near the potential of what they really could have done with the show and i just feel it's it's kind of bad that we've gone through how many movies and how many TV shows and the CGI isn't up to snuff, you know, like, um, and I'm not even talking about She-Hulk herself. There were other things. Yeah, it should have been a little better. So I do totally agree with a lot of that criticism. It was cool to see Tim Roth as the abomination, but again, you know, they're doing the whole Marvel thing where he becomes a joke more than anything. Um, some of the side characters were fine within the law firm, within the the retreat, the health retreat. You know, they were fine. Um, actually, one of my friends, not one of my friends, but I've worked with the guy who played the vampire. Um, his name is um, Terrence Klaus. Uh, I worked with him in a show once. So that was cool to kind of see him. It's weird seeing somebody you know in a scene because they sort of stand out and then they kind of don't mix with the scene well. It's kind of like when I watched Blair Witch Project because the the girl, Heather Donahue, was a year above me when I went when I was in college and I stage managed her in a show. And, um, you know, again, we weren't friends, but we knew each other. So when I was watching Blair Witch Project on the big screen, I'm like, oh, my God, there's Heather Donahue. It was really strange. I've had other moments like that, too. This is not a humble brag at all, but like... Um, the main actress in the Practice series, and she was also in Anacondas, and I think she was Sarah Michelle Gellar's sister in The Grudge. Yeah, The Grudge, Katie Strickland. Uh, she was somebody who was like a year or two below me at college, and suddenly she was like, you know, in movies and in TV, and she's been in other things. So, uh, yeah, always strange when you see somebody. So, anyway, She Hulk TV series, perfectly fine. Um, I don't know if I would sit through it all again, but there are moments that I, I would definitely watch like the Daredevil stuff again and the ending because those were pretty good. Um, but I don't know if I would watch it again. So there you go. Just my quick thoughts on that series. New Gold Lanes is about, uh, DC's 
past, present, and future. In the wake of Flashpoint Beyond 6, what we learn is that Rip Hunter pulled 13 characters out of history, essentially, out of the Golden Age, for some reason we don't know yet. And those 13 heroes are being put back into history. So the New Golden Age is a storyline that takes place from the 1940s all the way to the 31st century, and the one-shot will kick that storyline off. That storyline then goes off into Stargirl, The Lost Children, and Justice Society of America, but it's really only the beginning of it. But there are a lot of great scenes throughout that just take a look at these characters as, as humans and what they're dealing with, because the weight of being a part of this legacy of the JSA, it's different than being just a superhero, because there is a history to it all. New Comics Wednesday recommendations for the week of November 9th. No, re uh, no reviews this time around, just recommendations. Starting with two from Ablaze, Traveling to Mars Number 1 by Mark Russell and Roberto Melli. Traveling to Mars tells the story of former pet store manager Roy Livingston, the first human to ever set foot on Mars. Roy was chosen for this unlikely mission for one simple reason. He is terminally ill and therefore has no expectation of returning. Roy is joined on his mission to Mars by Leopold and Albert, two Mars rovers equipped with artificial intelligence, who look upon the dying pet store manager as a sort of god, against the backdrop of not only his waning days, but those of human civilization as well. Roy has ample time to think about where things went wrong for both of them, and what it means to be a dying god. A riveting story of planetary exploration and of finding meaning in your finals, final days. $3.99. I'm always interested in Mark Russell comics, so um, I at least try to put in my notes, you know, when a new series is, is out. And here you go, Traveling to Mars, number one. I love that the character, character is named Livingston, you know, I, I guess that's the whole, you know, Livingston, I presume, thing. I don't quite remember where it comes from, but I wonder if that factors in. Also from Ablaze, The Voice of Water, a hardcover for $16.99 by Tiziano Sclavi and Werther Deladera. Under a persistent rain, which seems destined to never subside, Stavros lives and moves through the streets of a dark and gloomy, nameless city. He has a job, a fiancé, his life is normal, yet several different voices talk to him, sometimes whispering, sometimes whining or yelling whenever he hears the water running. One day, as Stavros wanders the city under a heavy rain, voices become insistent, revealing his deepest unspeakable secrets as well as his dreams and memories. He is tormented by these mysterious voices, perhaps a sign of his madness, or perhaps of a wider collective madness which infects everyone around him to the point of being transmitted to the entire universe. A dramatic graphic novel full of black humor, spectacular and disturbing, written by uh, Sklavi, who is the creator of Dylan Dog, and illustrated by Deladera, who is the co-creator of Something is Killing the Children. From Marvel, we have Spider-Man The Lost Hunt, one of five for $4.99. J.M. DeMatteis, uh, Adair Messias, Ryan Brown. This is the origin of Craven, 
finally revealed. The secrets and answering mysteries that Spidey fans have been waiting for. To explore the depths of what made Craven the Hunter the powerhouse villain he was. This is set during the time right after Spider-Man The Final Adventure when Peter Parker was powerless. So that was a four-issue miniseries from around 1995 where Parker and Mary Jane, they're about ready to go live in Portland. And then a man from Craven's past stalks them. Who is the mystery man and what does he want, what does he want with Spider-Man? So this is another miniseries going back to the Craven's Last Hunt um, well, if you will which was a fantastic story. Uh, we've had other ones, right? We had Soul of the Hunter, was, which was a one-shot in 1992. Craven's First Hunt was in 1996. And then there was the Grim Hunt storyline in late 2000s. You could also say that Torment, Todd McFarlane's Torment, is also kind of like a thematic sequel to Craven's Last Hunt. Um, and this is another installment in that you know probably uh an evergreen spider-man story um you know one of the i would argue one of the top 10 spider-man stories maybe in my top five i'd have to think about that all right from fair square we have beyond topia legends this is a one shot for twelve dollars and 99 cents when the past is the future oh sorry when the past is the future where unknown myths and legends are discovered, witness the birth of the mystic universe. Here comes Beyondtopia Legends. From the mind of Indonesian visual artist Brian Valenza, this is an anthology series blending a variety of folklores, heroes, and legends, all reimagined for American and international audiences. This is spearheaded by Henry Barajas, who is from Helm Greycastle, and did a, a couple stories in Batman Urban Legends. It's a bi-monthly series bringing together artists from Indonesia and the world, including people like um, Sami Basri, uh, Gary Gastoni, uh, Sweta Kartika, and more. From Clover Press, we have Gollum of Venice Beach, a hardcover, $40. This was a Kickstarter project. This is a team-up of creators to create an all-new graphic novel, 152 pages, an epic about the adventures of a 400-year-old golem spanning from 16th century Europe to the horrors of World War II to modern-day Venice Beach, where the golem becomes entangled in a war between a gang and the police, a riveting narrative and a celebration of South Carolina excuse me, South Ca Southern California, with artists such as Nick Patara, Bill Sienkiewicz, Michael Allred, Stephen Arbissett, Jay Lee, Paul Pope, Vanessa Cardinale, and others. And finally, two from DC, Superman 75, the special edition, you know, the death of Superman, right, with all new stories uh, written by the creative teams from a lot of those stories back in the day. The Life of Superman by Dan Jurgens, Brett Beating, Breeding, uh, Brad Anderson, and John Workman. Standing Guard by Roger Stern, Butch Geis, Glenn Whitmore, and Rob Lay. Time by Louise Simonson, John Bogdanov, Glenn Whitmore, and Rob Lay again. 
and Above and Beyond by Jerry Ordway, Tom Grummet, Doug Hazelwood, Glenn Whitmore, and Rob Lay. So it's basically a celebration for the issue of Superman 75, where Superman died 30 years ago, and just a way to tell some other stories, you know, from either different perspectives or a different look at how the death of Superman affected certain characters. So uh, I'll look forward to reading that. And as you heard in the intro clip, that was Jeff Johns talking about the new Golden Age one-shot out this week, $4.99, with uh, Steve Lieber, Todd Nock, Jerry Ordway, uh, a bunch of other creators. I like what he had to say, from the Justice Society of America to the Legion of Superheroes, this whole mystery thing. These are the kind of one-shots that DC are, you know, they're just really, really good at. They're really good to use these as sort of kickoff stories. And we're going from the 1940s to the 3040s with, uh, again, characters like Rip Hunter, the Time Masters, um, Mime and Marionette from Doomsday Clock. There's a new character, Nostalgia. So this is, you know, the start of a whole new thing. I have a feeling this was something that was probably supposed to happen, you know, right after Doomsday Clock. But, you know, it's here now. And there's going to be a new Justice Society of America title and a new Star Star Girl miniseries. So I love this corner of the DC Universe. I love DC one-shots like this. And, you know, Jeff Johns is really good at writing these kind of stories. Uh, Apparently, there are a whole bunch of new Who's Who pages in this one-shot, I believe. So I'll look forward to seeing those as well because I love those and they should make a resurgence. So yeah, this is... Uh, a huge pick for this week. So there you go, my recommendations for the week of November 9th. Resurrections, an Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast. Five years and going strong. Every other week, mostly. For all of your Adam Warlock, Thanos, or Marvel Cosmic needs, find it on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are available. Resurrections Adam Warlock.tumblr.com. Adam Warlock, you cannot keep leaving your philosophy books open on the floor. I always trip on them in the middle of the night on my way to the can. Today in history, November 10th, 1969. You've never seen a street like Sesame Street. Everything happens here. You're going to love it. They're playing, play games. Hi, Bob. Hi. Say hello to Sally. She just moved into the neighborhood. Hi, Sally. That's How are you? Bob. Nice to see you. And Greetings, my friend. That's Hi, Mr. Hooper. Oh, Mr. Hooper. Hooper. Here's a dime for your, uh, for your paper. Thank you. Okay. See, he Hi, yeah. Come here, Hooper. Come here. Say hello to Sally. Hello, Sally. Sally's new. She just moved into the neighborhood. Welcome, new Sally. <laughs> Mr. Hooper. He runs the store. Well, I want you to meet Susan. Susan? Yeah? Susan's my wife. You love her. Susan, come here. Hi, I want you to say hello to Sally. Hi, Sally. What are you doing home from school huh? so early? Uh, 
Um, sure he is. Hello, Big Bird. Oh, uh, hi, Gordon. How are you? Oh, you know what I want you to do? I want you to meet Sally. Oh, sure. Oh, hi, Sally. Hi, Sally? Where's Sally? Big Bird, look down. Look down. Look down. This way. I don't look, see you her. You don't see her. Wait a minute. Yes, please. Big Bird, look mm -hmm. up. Oh, oh my oh, come God. On. Oh, she's eight feet tall. No, she's not. Oh. She's only four oh. feet tall. I'm holding her up. Mm -hmm. Hey, Bert. Bert, can you bring me a bar of soap? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, just toss it into a Rosie here. What? <laughs> the soap. Just, just, toss, just toss it into Rosie here. Who's Rosie? My bathtub. I call my bathtub Rosie. <laughs> Ernie, why do you call your bathtub Rosie? What's that? I said, why do you call your bathtub Rosie? Because every time I take a bath, I leave a ring around Rosie. <laughs> yeah, Oscar? Oscar? Yeah? Come on out. Now, look, be a nice guy. Hmm? It's a nice little girl. She's uh, new to the neighborhood. Say hello yeah. to her. This is Sally. Uh, well, is that her? That's her. Yeah. Uh, hello, kid. I like you. I like you too. Yeah, I really do. You know why? Why? Because in the 30 seconds or so that I've known you, you've never uh, banged on the lid of my trash can. You've never asked me to come out to meet anybody, or even told anybody where I live, or bugged me in general. Which is more than I can say about some people I know. Sesame Street, we have a great time here. You come back and join us anytime you want to. We're going to be here, right? Sally's going to be here. Everybody's going to be here. Come back and join us. See you later. Sesame Street has been brought to you today by the letters W, S, and E, and by the numbers 2 and 3. Sesame Street is a production of the Children's Television Workshop. That Today in History segment was for Thursday, November 10th. And that was just a few clips from the very first episode of Sesame Street, 53 years ago. Um, I don't think I've ever seen that episode, found it on YouTube. And um, I think I remembered that Oscar was orange, not green. Big Bird looked a little different. The voices sound a little different. Gordon is different. But, um, you know, many of the other elements are there. And I was surprised at how long the episode was. It clocks in at, at, at an hour. And uh, I don't remember the episodes being that long. But I had to celebrate, you know, Today in History, the very first episode of Sesame Street. So this Friday segment, this is Friday, um, November 11th. Uh, I just wanted to talk a little bit about my, um, my collection. I did another great comic book reorganization. This is probably the 
3646th version of it. It was less of a, of a reorganizing, to be fair, and more of a uh, just sort of like a relocation. So instead of having boxes and boxes about, what, like maybe three, yeah, three boxes tall, um, I was able to spread them out, uh, put up a table that I had, and I could put some boxes under it and put some boxes on top of it. That way it would be easier for me to get to in terms of, you know, things I wanted to read, things I want to sell, hint, hint, um, and really just to make it easier on my back and my knees. And uh, so I spread out my collection, and I think I talked about this before. I did a little rearranging. So the way my boxes are arranged, I have all DC up until the New 52, and then my boxes go all of the DC New 52 stuff all the way up to DC Rebirth. Then I start over with everything that came out during DC Rebirth that I collected, and most of the short boxes that I have up in my room right now, um, they start with Death Metal and Infinite Frontier, and they continue, you know, to current comics. Although I'm pretty sure with the whole Dawn of DC, I'll probably start another section over again. Then I have a bunch of boxes for Marvel, only about three or four. And then uh, all the rest of the boxes are everything else, you know. And usually um, it's alphabetized by company, but then also by titles as well. So like IDW, Image, Dark Horse, etc. Um, I decided to pull out all of my Morrison comics. That's about two or three boxes long. And then I just also pulled out all of the Jonathan Hickman stuff that I have just because I wanted that all together. And I do that a lot. Like, I have all of Perez's work together. I have Giffen's work together. Um, so now I'm able to, you know, go to each box, and I, I have a better understanding of where everything is. Um, I have drawer boxes in my closet in my bedroom, and those are full of my Legion comics and all of my Titans comics, including things like Vigilante and Omega Man, Outsiders when they were connected, Deathstroke, Nightwing, Young Justice the Cartoon, Teen Titans Go, etc., etc. I have two boxes that are just reference comics, you know, like Who's Who, Ohatmu, Secret Files, Galleries, Sketchbooks, Promos, and then one box that is um, everything that I need for, you know, podcasting, you know, some Legion issues some crisis tapes issues, some things that I want to do for the Daily Rios. Um, and whenever I do sort of like a reorganizing or a shuffling around, um, there are always some takeaways, you know, like why do I have, why do I have some comic boxes that when you put the comics in, the top of the comic sticks out just, just, just a little bit. So you put the lid on and I feel like you can't really put another box on top of that one because they'll be resting on the comics themselves, even with the lid on. I don't know if like over the years did the did the sides shift or were the boxes always like that. But I have a handful of boxes that are like that that I always got to keep to the top. Um, of course, as I look through and shift books around... I go, well, yep, here's a whole section of things I haven't read, you know, like all those new 52 comics. 
that I collected. I don't have all of them, but I have a bunch of them. You know, a lot of that's unread, some DC Rebirth, some current stuff, a lot of indies, you know. I, I just, I put this on Twitter that I just don't know how people have the time to read more than I do because they have families and careers and I don't have that kind of stuff. And I'm like, how do I not read as much as other people? And then um, Stephen Orr on Twitter, he responded and said, you know, you're living the life, brother. And I, I replied to, you know, is that what I'm doing? Am I living life? I guess. So um, that's my little, you know, reorganizing and reshuffling. And whenever I do it, I always, you know, it, it's kind of fun. Like I, I think I talked about this before. It's fun to reconnect to your collection, you know. And I, I know there was a segment uh, maybe over the summer where I said, you know, if you're someone who hasn't organized your collection, if you have piles on a desk or on the floor, you know, now's the time to take take that time. Clean up that clutter, get them into boxes at least or bags and boards if you do that, you know. So those of you who may have heard that segment, did you did you organize your collection? And if you're only hearing it for the first time, it was like a call out, you know, like let this year be the year that you clean it up. And maybe as we're getting into the new year, let that be a resolution. You know, you're going to organize your collection, not only organize, but then inventory, whether it's on a spreadsheet or some kind of app. I know there's a bunch of people that use a different kind of app to, to organize their collection um, and inventory their collection. So do that. Go and do that. And then, of course, the next thing is to read them, you know. I did participate in the, uh, you know, 500 comic book goal on Twitter thing, uh, whatever hashtag that is. I'm stuck around 200, and I don't remember how many I read last year, but I thought it was only a little bit more than 200. So if I want to reach 500 by the end of the end of the year, I got a long way to go, um, and I certainly want to try to read more than I did last year. So I gotta I gotta catch up on that. We'll see. Uh, why do we do this to ourselves, right? Why are we collectors? Why do we collect more than we can read? And between, you know, now that I have the DCU app and there's so much stuff on there I want to read, plus the physical, it's like, uh, you know, and I still get preview copies um, digitally from companies. You know, it's just a lot. It's too much. So, yeah, that's it. I just wanted to talk a little bit about that here at the end of this digest. As always, send me email, peter at thedailyrios.com. Go visit the Daily Rios website. Go visit the Daily Rios Instagram. Follow my Twitter, Peter J. Rios. Yes, I am still there. Review me on your favorite podcast catcher. I'm on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. Um, if I should be anywhere else, let me know. Send me your book club recommendation. The next one we're going to be doing is Doctor Strange and Doctor Doom, Triumph and Torment, I think it's called. Graphic novel from the late 80s. Um, send me your promos if you heard one in this episode, if you have a podcast or a comic book coming up. This has been the Daily Rios episode 588 for Sunday, November 13th, 2022. Talk to you soon. Are mutants dangerous? I'm afraid that's an unfair question, Senator Kelly. After all, the wrong person behind the wheel of a car can be dangerous. Well, we do license people to drive. Yes, but not to live.